My name is Sa'ed Atshan. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Emory University, and it is my honor to be the host and moderator of today's event with Dr. Perla Isa from the Institute of Palestine Studies, where we will have a discussion on her recently published book, uh, Elf Elf Mabruk. Congratulations, Dr. Isa. I look forward to celebrating your work uh, this afternoon. I'd also like to thank uh, Laura Albast from the Institute for Palestine Studies for all of her help with setting up this webinar and the, the technical aspects. We couldn't have done it without her. So thank you so much, uh, Laura. We really, really, really appreciate it. So it's really my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Uh, Perla Isa, who is uh, an accomplished, accomplished person. She is a researcher at the Institute for Palestine Studies, IPS, in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, she holds a PhD in politics from Exeter University, an MA in Arab Studies from Georgetown University, a second MA in Mechanical Engineering from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and a bachelor's degree in Mechanical Engineering from McGill University. Her PhD dissertation entitled Politi Palestinian Political Factions and Everyday Perspective was the 2015 joint winner of the Brismis Lee Douglas Memorial Prize for the best UK doctoral dissertation on the Middle East. Additionally, she uh, co-directed and produced a six-part independent documentary film series, Chronicles of Refugee, that looks at the global Palestinian refugee experience since 1948. Uh, and today we will discuss her book, entitled The Endurance of Palestinian Political Factions, an Everyday Perspective from Nahr al-Barid Camp, which was published in 2021 with the University of California Press. And it is part of the New Directions in Palestinian Studies book series, which is an amazing new book series edited, edited by uh, leading figures within the field of Palestinian studies. So welcome, Dr. Isa, ahlan wa sahlan. I'm going to turn it over to you now for some remarks uh, and framing of the, of the overall book project. And then I will ask some questions, share a few reflections, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So please feel free, folks, to type your questions uh, in the Q&A. Uh, I will be happy to read those out for Dr. Isa. Or you're welcome to, quote unquote, come on stage and ask your question yourself. If you'd like to do the latter, please feel free to raise your hand during the Q&A portion and Laura will help us uh, call on you to get on stage, so to speak. So Dr. Isa, I hand it over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Saed, uh, for the introduction and uh, thank you all uh, for joining. Uh, I think the best way for me to, to start would be to begin with the puzzle, uh, the question that kind of led me to embark on this research and to ultimately write this book. And it is, um, you know, how are Palestinian political factions uh, maintaining centrality in Palestinian political life in Lebanon in the face of widespread unpopularity? Uh, how are they reproduced on an everyday basis? And so um, I think anyone who has done who has any basic knowledge about the Palestinian camps in Lebanon would know uh, how unpopular the Palestinian political factions are. And it is actually well documented in, in academic literature. Tujar Dem, Khawana, Haramiye, 
Amaflin, uh, merchants of death, traitors, thieves, rotten. Those are just some of the terms that Palestinians use to describe their factions on a daily basis. Um, in 2006, 2007, I did a documentary film uh, with colleagues uh, that I referred to where we interviewed over 300 uh, refugees, or 300 Palestinians around the world. And uh, out of the 300 people, only one person answered positively to the question, does anyone represent you politically today? So the uniformity of the no answer across geography, age, um, socioeconomic status was really striking and really, um, I think, reflects kind of this general feeling of disenfranchisement that Palestinian refugees feel towards their political representative. And to make my initial question um, of the continued relevance of Palestinian factions even more puzzling if it wasn't already, I can add that Palestinians in Lebanon have on several occasions uh, attempted to alter their political representatives. Um, one, there are several examples, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick to one, which is the major, major one, is an election that happened in, Ch in Chatila camp in 2005, uh, an open election where camp residents voted uh, and elected a committee that they called Lijnat al-Ahali, uh, a people's committee, we can translate it. And just, I guess, as background information, camps in Lebanon have what's called a popular committee, um, they have nothing to do with the popular committees of the first intifada. Um, they uh, they are supposed to act like a municipality, um, although residents, camp residents, will, will tell you that they do not. And um, they are appointed by factions. They are not elected, and they are the uh, object of a lot of criticism uh, from camp residents. So in 2005 in Chatila, there was the first, and uh, up until now, the only open election committee and the committee lasted for about a year, resolved uh, electricity issues in the camp and started working on water problems and then the members resigned. Um, and the few scholars who wrote about this, uh, and they include uh, Rosemary Sayer, Gianna Allen, uh, Hala Abuzake and Manal Portan, um, portrayed this initiative as being independent and grassroots, independent of the factions, and blamed Ghanet's demise on the factions. So the question was, how are you know, unpopular factions destroying these uh, you know, grassroots initiatives? And so I began my fieldwork. And uh, once I was in the field, I was fa faced with a frustration. Uh, and I think, again, anybody who's done work in the camps would, would know this frustration. And basically, I couldn't figure out who was in a faction from who was not. And as you can imagine, this caused a lot of grief because here I was studying um, how, you know, the political factions are, are, are undermining these independent and grassroots uh, initiatives, and I couldn't figure out who was who. Um, and so initially I thought maybe this was related to my position as an outsider, as a researcher who couldn't properly read the politics of the community. But I soon realized that uh, Palestinians themselves had a lot of discussions uh, between each other, kind of arguing about the political affiliation of each other. And uh, to give you an example, of, a little bit of this confusion, I will uh, share the story of a young man whom I'm calling Mahmoud. So Mahmoud um, was in his early 20s and he uh, had several jobs. He was a construction worker by day, working on the reconstruction of Nahr al-Barid. And he was a DJ by night. He owned a sound system and a mixing console, and he performed in 
uh, political events, uh, bachelor parties, you know, weddings. And he also worked uh, with an NGO in the distribution of aid and in entertaining children, like doing clown activities in theater. So uh, when I first asked Mahmoud about his political affiliation, he told me that he was in principle with the DFLP, so his choice of words, you know, in principle, uh, made it sound like as if there's another answer, like there's a, an in-practice answer, but there's the in-principle answer and then there's the, you know, in reality or in, in, in actuality answer. So now when I tried to figure out this other answer, he just told me how uh, during the 2007 conflict, the Mahabad conflict, um, he uh, was volunteering with an NGO with Najdi, which is an NGO linked to the DFNP, and that he found himself uh, invited to party meetings and then became a member, found himself uh, almost as if he became a member of the DFNP by accident. Um, and then uh, several weeks later, um, sorry. So yeah, sorry. So several weeks later, I saw him leading the DFLP scouts in a political march in the camps. And once I saw him, you know, leading the, the DFLP scouts in an open event, this kind of solidified in my mind. So yes, Mahmoud is a, is a member of the DFLP. Again, uh, a month later, the story continues. Um, in an evening conversation, I referred to him as a DFLP member and he gets upset. And he tells me, no, I already told you, I'm not with anyone. I'm with my own interests. Uh, so here he's insinuating that the DFNP are not looking out for his interests. And it took me about a week to understand why he had gotten angry that night. And he explained that the DFNP were uh, preparing for their annual anniversary commemoration. And they had asked him to provide them with a sound system. And they had offered to pay him $50. But Mahmoud knew the person who had rented the, the sound system for them the prior year, and he knew that they had paid him $100. So he was, uh, you know, upset. And he sent them a text message, an SMS, which he showed me. He sent it to his uh, superior in the, the faction, whom I'm calling Abu Mustafa. And the message said, uh, which means, uh, like, happy anniversary. And uh, you, you better find someone else. Uh, then a month later... Dr. Isa, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. We have a comment that says, I'm having trouble hearing Dr. Uh, Isa. Could she raise her microphone level? Maybe I'm the only one, thanks. I actually can hear you perfectly well, um, but I think some other folks may be struggling to hear you. So if you wouldn't mind just speaking up a little bit more and maybe raising the volume of the microphone if possible. Sorry to interrupt your story. I, oh, I want to hear the rest you. of this story. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, is this better? I'll, I'll try to raise my voice. So, um, so yeah, so about a month later, I'm riding in the car with Mahmoud, and he tells me of this girl uh, that he met, that he likes, and that they are sending each other text messages, and that he's trying to meet up with her, and then I realized that her father is Abu Mustafa, the same Abu Mustafa to whom he had sent that kind of daring text message to before. Um, and the story continues. So about a few months later, uh, Mahmoud decides to go back to college and to continue his education. 
And he tells me that he approached Abu Mustafa and that uh, he, Abu Mustafa agreed to that the DFLP would pay Mahmoud the $200 annual stipend that the, that the DFLP pays to its students. Um, so one can think that, you know, Mahmoud's uh, interest in the DFLP may be financially motivated. But I would say that if he was looking for kind of a maximization of, you know, his finances, he better go to Fatah, who pay uh, $50 a month, who pay the students $50 a month, so much more than the DFLP. But in this case, he went back to the DFLP, so which shows that his um, relationship was, was kind of ongoing. So I think the story kind of drives home two points. Um, the first is that if we were to try to define Mahmoud's relationship with the DFLP as being in the faction, as a member or outside of the faction, would have really been impossible. And more importantly, it actually would have missed a lot of the complexity of that relationship. And the sec second point um, that this example shows is that the relationship between a person and a faction is not a relationship between a person and a structure that is defined by an ideology, but it is a relationship between people that basically Mahmoud's relationship with the faction is mediated through relationships with people and with whom we may have non-political relations. So another way of saying it is that factions and personal relations intermix. And it is through stories like these and many others uh, that I started thinking that maybe we need to re-examine the way we imagine or conceptualize factions. And basically, I contend um, that while we all know that factions are made of people, people who enter into different types of relationships with each other, um, that in the way we talk of factions and the way we treat them and the way we study them and the way we criticize them, uh, we treat them as an entity with the life, as entities with a life of their own that exists separately and independently from the very people they seek to encompass. And one way to uh, visualize this is to say that we treat factions as if they were structures, almost as if they were buildings. Um, and this is actually reflected in the terminology that Palestinians use on a daily basis. For example, Palestinians would say, uh, I entered the faction, as if we're entering a building. Palestinians talk of a CSI, a political ceiling talking of the hierarchy in the factions, the vertical limitations. Um, they would say uh, of, a, of someone who's factionalized that he has a back, dahir, so someone protecting him. So this uh, image of, uh, of entering of a ceiling and of a back really kind of uh, points to an imagination where we see factions almost like a structure, and we do call them political structures. And um, kind of visualizing factions as building-like structures uh, is actually appealing because it helps us imagine, it helps us demarcate factions from each other. Uh, it helps explain the hierarchy inside the factions with kind of the members at the bottom and the leadership at the top. And it helps explain how factions remain even when the people inside change. Um, and even more so how factions remain when there's no one inside. Uh, when they become, they, they would become empty buildings. And actually, I begin this book with a quote from a young man in Shatila, who says that after the departure of the PLO in 1982, uh, the factions became empty buildings, referring to their unpopularity. That, but still, there is that structure that is left, although there is no people. 
And uh, I would argue that this conceptualization of factions as building-like structure is also evident in the academic literature of factions. Uh, scholars routinely, we refer to factions as actors, players, political bodies, political structures. Uh, we ascribe actions, intentions, aspirations, identities to them. We refer to them in the singular, and we study them mostly through an examination of their ideologies, a history of their founding and their evolution over the years, their regional and international alliances, uh, their sources of funding, without examining the, uh, the practices, the daily practices of those who form their very core, their members. So in this study, I attempted to adopt an alternative methodology, um, what I like to refer to as a lateral approach. So basically, uh, I do not look at factions from the top down. I do not look at party literature, writings of party, uh, party founders, and I do not do interviews with the leadership. And it's not a bottom-up approach either. It's not an ethnography based on what appears to be the inside of factions. But, which could be faction offices, NGOs that are related to factions or youth clubs. Um, I look at factions from the sides, uh, from, from homes, from daily, daily home life. Uh, and basically, uh, I lived in Nahr al-Barit for seven months with a host family. Um, and through that, I was able to see how Palestinians experienced the faction on a day-to-day -day basis, how they encountered them. And... Um, and it was through this alternative perspective that I was able to see how the nature of factions, how we visualize factions as people or as a building, changes really depending on what practice we focus on. Um, so I look at two sets of practices. The first set of practice, uh, first I look at how Palestinians join factions and how the relationship evolves over time. So I look at the nature of faction membership uh, and I show, or hopefully I show, you'll read and decide for yourself, uh, that through these practices, the factions appear as a loose network of people uh, who are bound together with different degrees of trust and cohesion, and that change with time and context. So they, they lose their appearance of a structure, of a bounded structure, uh, with members inside and, uh, you know, the independence on the outside and that are defined by ideology, like the Mahmoud example, where we see that the relationship between a person and a faction is really about relationship with, between people. And then I look in, at another set of practices. I look at uh, aid distribution, how uh, factions provide aid. I look at factionalism, the violent confrontation of factions, and at the anniversary commemorations, how factions commemorate their, their birth, their founding. And I show how through these practices, uh, factions suddenly now appear as structures, as building-like structures that exist independently uh, of, of their members. Um, and again, how that boundary is, is drawn, the boundary between the inside and the outside. Um, so if I can summarize what this book is about, um, I would say this is an ethnography that aims to show how factions are formed through interpersonal relations, through relations that are highly personal, that have a lot of trust, and how through certain practices they metamorphose into these impersonal structures that are distrusted by the community. Um, so I aim to show this kind of, this double movement, what I refer to as the double nature of factions. And, um, 
And this, I think, allows us to begin to understand how factions continue to endure uh, in the face of widespread condemnation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think that the, the last uh, reference you made really stuck out because I, I, I noted it in my notes, this quote, this part where you say, by focusing on everyday life, this book shows that particular practices allow factions to metamorphose into structures while hiding the social relations that form their very core. And I will say that I think you demonstrated that very clearly through your rich ethnography. I, I, the refugee question is at the heart and soul of the question of Palestine more broadly. Uh, I, I, we need more attention to quotidian everyday refugee life in Lebanese refugee camps. And this book really provides us with an amazing set of insights and, and rich texture of everyday lives. So thank you so much for this amazing book. Uh, I really enjoyed it as an anthropologist, as a scholar of Palestine. And I, I do have so many questions to ask you, but let me try to, 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 to contain it to a finite set of questions. The first regarding positionality. So I was struck in the book that you mentioned that you come from a Palestinian refugee background, but unlike these folks, you have Lebanese citizenship. So there's, there are ways in which you can really empathize, but there are also ways in which your own experience has been different. So could you tell us a little bit more about your positionality and also the question of access? How did your positionality provide you with access and what challenges did you face in being able to access this particular context? Yes, um, yep. Um, actually, uh, yes, I, I am from a I'm a Palestinian refugee, but one with a Lebanese citizenship. But also, I actually came to know of my uh, Palestinian identity late in life. <laughs> I didn't actually grow up with that, but that was due to the civil war and where we lived. I, I grew up, I was born in Lebanon and I grew up here and we later emigrated. Um, so I discovered this later in life and then um, I visited camps in Lebanon. And and uh, I did a lot of work in Nahr al-Barid before I started my research. And this was actually why I chose Nahr al-Barid, uh, because I felt that to do this research, it was fundamental that I have a very deep relationship with the people for them to kind of share these kind of intimate and very personal stories uh, of theirs. So yes, I'm, a, I'm an outsider in a sense. I've never lived in a camp uh, other than for this research. <laughs> this was the first time. Um, but I was perceived by the by the community as being uh, by the people who know me well uh, as being Palestinian, but as people who who meet me, um, who you know were meeting me for the first time, uh, you know I could easily appear to be also a foreigner uh, because you know obviously I, I was I lived for a long time in the West and I'm you know so in the way I look and the way I dress, um, but. Uh, so I always had kind of this double, uh, double position, but I would say that with time, uh, and yes, I was involved in the Harabad for over four years before this research. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was seen as a Palestinian. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you demonstrate very clearly how there are these intimate ties of family, of friendship, of neighborhood ties that help shape the, the realities of factions and how the political factions and how they're constituted. 
I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more about the question of political economy and how political economy comes together, because you discuss aid, you discuss the need for survival of, you know, people's economic, you know, harsh realities and how you even in the last vignette that you mentioned in your earlier remarks, you know, you talked about this question of $50 versus $100 and, you know, this discrepancy and how this young man was upset about this, you know, as a result. Um, but could you just tell us a little bit more about how political economy shapes these dynamics? Sure. I mean, uh, definitely factions play an important role uh, in terms of, uh, you know, helping people financially, um, certainly at the time of my research and even more so now uh, with the economic crisis that Lebanon is going through. Uh, but uh, it was very clear to me that that was never um, the incentive or the reason why uh, Palestinians would choose which faction they would go to, because if really they wanted, as I said, if they wanted to just get the most money, they would go towards the richer factions, the faction that pay more. And that was not the case, um, you know, uh, certainly not in Nahr al-Barid, in Nahr al-Barid, the um, most, the the bigger factions are the PFLP and the DFLP. The, PF, the PFLP gives almost no money, the, the DFLP gives a little bit more. Um, but certainly being uh, connected to a faction uh, for a long period of time would, would offer, would give you uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, aid, you know, a, a sort of protection, not protection, but the sustainability, financial sustainability. And the longer you are with the faction or the longer that relationship is ongoing, the bigger that financial reward would be. So, so this is what I mean by the, the initial contact with the faction was not really uh, justified through uh, monetary incentives. Uh, and you mentioned the critique that many people have of some of the factions and their spending, you know, for example, with the, you know, ceremonies and celebration, celebrating the anniversary of the faction and people commenting, you know, those funds could actually be used to help people instead, rather than have all of this pomp and circumstance. So that was actually quite, quite compelling. I, you know, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about Lori Allen, also anthropologist of Palestine, her book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Human Rights, cynicism and politics in occupied Palestine. So I was thinking a lot about the question of affect and particularly cynicism. So I, I you know, I, I know obviously there is cynicism. How could you not be cynical in this kind of political context? But could you share with us a little bit more about the question of affect, cynicism with your interlocutors, but as well as how you navigated your own affect and the question of cynicism versus hope regarding not only this question, but I think in many ways, it's a window to the larger question of Palestine more broadly. You know, how, how, what, how do we navigate our affect and how do we hold, is there any hope to hold on to or is uh, cynicism at this point just a chronic condition? I'm afraid I don't have an answer to that, especially, you know, I, I live in Lebanon. <laughs> so the last two years, uh, two, three years, I mean, it's been, you know, so uh, we have to hang on to hope, I would say, I don't know. But um, um, I mean, to go back to Nahr al-Barid, uh, in a way I chose, I mean, I chose to do my research in Nahr al-Barid because uh, as I said, it was where I had kind of the most long-standing relationships and where I felt that people would be, you know, open and sincere with me, but also because Nahr al-Barid had just been destroyed 
in a battle in 2007 um, that kind of the Lebanese army with a non-Palestinian militant group that kind of, uh, you know, uh, found, you know, kind of came in, came into the camp. And the factions uh, stood on the side of that. So there was a lot of resentment and a lot of anger uh, against the factions. So in a way, it was kind of a really good choice uh, to see at this, to examine the endurance of the factions in the, in the face of so much uh, anger and opposition from the residents who feel that they lost everything. And the factions just stood on the sides when you know their homes were being destroyed. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, hope, you know, we have to <laughs> keep holding Absolutely. on to it. Absolutely. But I'm also so sorry about everything that's happening in Lebanon. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And I'm so praying for you and your loved ones and everyone there. Um, I just have two more questions and then we'll open it up to the audience. And we really do encourage people to uh, post questions in the Q&A feature or to raise their hands if they'd like to ask their questions themselves. But, but uh, I promise I am getting to the end um, of my intervention. So just uh, one question regarding Nahr al-Barid and the context now. So much has changed. You know, you talk about in the book that it was the second largest uh, refugee camp in Lebanon in terms of population, et cetera. But what is the nature of Nahr al-Barid today? What, what are the conditions there? And how has that changed over time? Yeah, no, Nahr al-Barid remains the, the second largest camp in Lebanon. Uh, it's still not uh, completely uh, rebuilt, um, probably around like between 70 to 80% of it has been rebuilt. Um, the camp uh, suffered a lot uh, after the conflict because uh, before the conflict, it was uh, a kind of a commercial hub because it was, it's, on, it's on the main road between Syria and Tripoli which is the second largest city in Lebanon. It's on the Mediterranean shoreline and it's in this agriculture, it's in a very fertile area. So a lot of Lebanese farmers used to come to the camp to sell their produce. A lot of residents from Tripoli would go to the camp to uh, buy uh, you know, goods. They used to smuggle a lot of goods from Syria. So things were very cheap. Um, so it had a lot of economic activity and it was actually the nature of Nahr that was very different from other camps that was very open to the Lebanese surroundings and there was a lot of mixed marriages between Palestinians and Lebanese. Um, so the, the conflict and then um, and the post-conflict when the Lebanese army kind of surrounded the camp and imposed these checkpoints uh, completely uh, obviously uh, disseminated this commercial activity. Um, and uh, the camp, so most of the camp residents, which were, uh, you know, traders, uh, lost lost their income. Um, so definitely, the situation is is a lot worse. And then now, obviously, with the economic crisis that Lebanon and the not just economic, political, social, security, <laughs> the entire crisis that Lebanon's going through, um, uh, things have uh, you know gotten much harder. Unfortunately, unfortunately. And, you know, my final question is regarding generalizability. I'm not a positivist social scientist uh, at all, but actually sometimes I do find the question of generalizability quite uh, compelling. So I was wondering if you, if you had any thoughts on how these insights about the political factions, how they're perceived, how people relate to them within this particular context, you know, Palestinian refugees in the Harim camp, what does that tell us about 
political parties more generally um, around the world? Can, can we extrapolate in any way beyond this very specific context? Yeah, no, th thank you for this question. I think it's an important one. Um, I think, I think, I mean, at the, at the base, my the basic argument that I'm trying to make is that we all know that factions or, or political parties or UN agencies or NGOs, I think anything that we refer to as a political structure, this is not related to just Palestinians or to um, So any political party or political structure, we all know that they are ultimately made of people. That there's nothing more than people, but yet we can we accept this kind of assumption, this preconceived idea that we have that they are structures, that they exist independently on their own, from the, separately from the people who are inside. And I try to show is this duality that they are both. They appear to they, they are a network of people, but yet they also appear to be a structure. And we, when we treat them uh, as a structure, we also actually give them power. Um, so this duality, this what I call the double nature, uh, is certainly um, applicable to, to any other political structure. Uh, the context obviously matters because ultimately what, what I show is I go through these practices uh, and practices would change from one setting to another. So if one was to study uh, Lebanese political parties, they would have a very different context and very different practices. But I think at the core, the idea is the same. Um, is that we treat political parties as an entity, and but they're actually just made of people. So, um, so there's this kind of that tension that I look at. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, and I'm also grateful to Laura Bust for from IPS for posting in the chat the link to Dr. Isa's book, which is in open access, free, and so easy to download. So I, I think that's wonderful that the book is so accessible. Uh, and, and I highly, highly recommend that folks uh, read it. And we do have questions coming in, which is great. And let's start with Pauline Kaufman's question. She asks, I hope you will describe the conditions in Nahar al-Barid now. The terrible destruction of the camp had to have decimated the social structure. Has it been rebuilt? If so, how? Yes. Um, so, so, so not about it or all camps in Lebanon, uh, they're divided. I mean, there there's two things. There's the original camp, uh, which is what they call the old camp, which is the the, the land that uh, UNRWA, uh, you know, leased in 1949. Um, and then there's the extension. So Palestinians over the years, you know, uh, couldn't just you know live in that original land, so they bought uh, land outside of the camp, around the camp, and they would build. So the uh, so UNRWA was responsible for the reconstruction of the old camp, uh, and that's what I was referring to as not complete yet. That around you know seventy to eighty percent of that was was uh, was rebuilt. As for the new camp, uh, what people refer to as the new camp, which is just the Lebanese area that where Palestinians have bought land and built. Uh, that's really up to the people themselves. There's no kind of outside player. Um, and because of that, actually, in many ways, that has been rebuilt faster because when you just let the people themselves rebuild, they tend to rebuild faster than this organization who has to kind of rebuild for, for everyone. Um, um, so, yeah, and as I said, like the, the camp really suffered greatly from kind of the seclusion that happened to it being uh, surrounded by checkpoints and kind of uh, destroying all this commercial activity that was at its core. 
We have a question from Nasir al-Masri. Typically, joining a faction comes with some level of political socialization. Does that play out in any way here? Similarly, does it not have some influence on who gets recruited in the first place? Or are social relations, however loose, sufficient for recruitment purposes? No, absolutely, actually. Um... One of my main points in the books and, uh, is that Palestinians uh, join factions based on interpersonal relations. So through political socialization, whether through the family, uh, friendships, or what I refer to as neighborhood ties. Uh, it matters a lot. So when a faction has a youth center uh, and you live close by, you'll naturally, you know, you may or you may not, but I mean, you may go to the center uh, to participate in, activi in activities. So um, you really, through these stories, and I, I go through them in the book, you see how factions, how uh, Palestinians are, um, how their first contact with the faction is through these personal relations. And this holds true for both the, um, the, uh, the Thaura generation and the younger generation, the generation that was born after the Thawra. Uh, the, the Thawra being the Palestinian revolution in the 70s and 80s in Lebanon. Um, and this was noted in, in by other scholars too, scholars of the Palestinian revolution, um, that people, you know, get um, uh, acquainted with the factions through kind of these personal relations. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that if, you know, you're, you're born into a family where your parents are, let's say, you know, DFLP, that doesn't mean that you become DFLP, not at all. But when you want to trace back that initial context, you'll always find a personal relation, like someone who took you, who introduced you to a particular faction. So mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. Marcus Hallinan says, excellent talk, Dr. Isa. I look forward to reading your book. With a finite amount of Palestinians in camps, what is the level of competition of the factions slash parties trying to attract more supporters? And how common are familial slash clan conflicts? Since as you explained, parties are heavily dependent on interpersonal relationships rather than ideology. Thank you. Um, sorry, can you repeat the last part of the question? So the last part is, uh, so he says, with a finite amount of Palestinians in camps, what is the level of competition of the factions trying to attract more supporters? And how common are familial slash clan conflicts? Since as you explained, parties are heavily dependent on interpersonal relationships rather than ideology. Yeah. Um... I would say in, in, I mean, factions are, uh, are, are deeply unpopular. I mean, people uh, don't, uh, um, don't boost of their uh, affiliation with factions. Uh, again, this is why I chose Nahri Barid, where I felt I could get more sincere uh, answers. But like, I have a quote where telling, where, you, you know, a young person says like, be, being part of a faction has become a crime. So I would say there isn't a lot of competition um, in the sense that this is not like, you know, people are in a rush to, to, to join factions and the relationships are very loose, kind of like Mahmoud, you know, one day you're in, one day you're out, you're, you, you know, you're moving in this kind of gray zone. Um, in terms of, uh, fighting, um, 
I mean, it, it depends on the camps. It's, it really is very uh, camp specific because each camp, uh, because of the civil war, each camp has its own history. Uh, they all lived through very different uh, battles, very different contexts. They were invaded, occupied by, you know, different uh, armies. Um, so, so it varies. Um, but like in Nahr al-Barat, um, there's very little interfactional fighting. Uh, because again of the nature the nature of the camp that was much more commercial uh, entrepreneurial um, uh, but some other camps like notoriously Ain al-Hilwe there's a lot more uh, interfactional fighting so it, it really depends on the camp mm -hmm. oh, so Frank Guzman asks to what extent do factions reinforce or discourage women's participation in politics especially as candidates in elections? I would say it depends on the faction um, and its own uh, kind of, you know, political ideology and what they perceive. Um, but uh, in general, I mean, like there's camps, uh, Shatila camp in Beirut has uh, women on its popular committee. Uh, Palestinian women are are very are very much engaged in Palestinian political life. Uh, they tend to be more engaged in NGO work than in informal uh, factional work, but uh, not necessarily. For example, the, the DFLP has a lot of women uh, in leadership positions in the DFLP. So it really comes back to the kind of the ideology of the faction. Folks, please feel free to add any more questions. I've gone through the questions um, and, and as I wait if, to see if there are any more, I, as I said, I have so many questions, so I'll give myself as moderator now the opportunity to ask a few more questions. If that's okay with you, Dr. Isa, I hope we're not exhausting you. Um, but could, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your choice of, of publisher and to publish with the New Directions in Palestinian Studies series. Why were you drawn to that series in particular? And how do you envision your book sort of fitting within the broader discussions that are happening in that context? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I, honestly, I couldn't have picked it. I mean, I feel like this was the ideal place, the best place to be part of the series that really kind of looks at the everyday, that really emphasizes the everyday and kind of the daily experience of people and of refugees. And that kind of backs away from these kind of general geopolitical, you know, international relation approach to Palestinian politics. Um, so I was really honored when and, you know, I was I was accepted, um, and also I really appreciate the open access aspect of it, um, because you know what's the point if I'm writing a book and sitting on the shelf, you know, you know not to be read. Um, so that was also a huge incentive. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And could you share with us what you're working on now in terms of your current and future projects, you know, the sort of intellectual horizon moving forward? What can we anticipate and look forward to? Sure. Well, uh, now I'm beginning in, a new project on the political education of actually Palestinians. So it's, it's a continuation. 
but it kind of looks at how Palestinians, uh, young Palestinians get their knowledge on Palestine. So not just, a, not just a sense of identity or, you know, I feel Palestinian as opposed to Lebanese since, you know, I'm rejected from Lebanon, but uh, where do they get their, their actual knowledge? So on the history of Palestine on you know, the, the political events. Um, uh, so, yeah, so this is the beginning and, you know, um, Unfortunately, again, in this research, it's quite apparent that factions are not playing a role and that it really comes back to the individuals, to themselves, to a lot of research and a lot of work to, to learn. Wow, that's a fascinating project. I wish you all the best with that. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Isa, for sharing your work with all thank of us. You. Thank you to uh, Laura and everyone at IPS. And thank you to the folks who tuned in via Zoom and via Facebook. Uh, it's wonderful to be in community with you all. Uh, please take good care and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you so much.